My loves, I don't know if you're like me or many of my friends or the, a lot of the people that I know, but listen, do you have a cabinet in your kitchen that's packed with supplements and all these amazing things? They're all there to support your overall health, to boost your gut, to boost your vitality, but you ended up being like too overwhelmed to even like look at it and create a routine with them that you're like just ended up skipping taking your supplements. I've been there too, honey. And this is why I want to take a moment to share an incredible discovery with you, my darling. It's called AG1. And let me tell you, it's been a game changer for me. And how I noticed that it was a big game changer for me was when me and my dad were, do were, we were doing that grief walk from uh, friends through Spain. And I got to tell you, the food was delicious, but it wasn't the best for my gut. But how I kept the gut going, how I kept boosting my vitality throughout the walk was every morning I would put a pack, a packet of the AG1 into a water bottle and I would shake it up and I would drink it. Even my dad, who's always like, here, dad, here, this is good for you. He's like, no, thanks. And granted, you know, the homie's got, you know, he's doing really well um, health-wise. And, but he's always like, nope. But with this, with AG1, he was like, okay, give me some. And he would take it. And it's, there is, it's, it's amazing when you take something, uh, you know, with routine and you start to see the results. It's like, okay, fine. I found my thing. Especially because it's just one serving that has the most straightforward way and simplest way for you to get your vitamins and your nutrients and your minerals and your prebiotics and probiotics. And honestly, why take a bunch of different things when you can just get um, all of it in, in one scoop of this delicious magic AG1 powder? into a glass of water or into the beautiful uh, water bottle that you get. This is how I start my days, honey. And honestly, if you're a traveler, they also uh, will send you, you could also get the AG1 travel packs and they're amazing. And, and every time I have a friend that comes over to the house, I'm always like, here, take a couple of these and try it out for yourself, you know? And I want to share an amazing, exclusive, delicious offer with you today. If you want to take ownership of your health, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com backslash sa. So that's drinkag1number1.com backslash sa. Um, you got that. And if you don't go to the show notes, it's there. And cheers to your health and your vitality. Hey, my love, listen real quick. I hope you're enjoying the podcast as much as we love creating it for you. And if you find value in what we're doing and you want to show some appreciation, we have two simple ways for you to contribute. The first one is by buying us a coffee. It's a one-time donation that goes a long way in helping us cover production costs, equipment upgrades, and other podcast-related expenses. Every cup of coffee makes a significant impact in our ability to keep delivering the quality content that you love. The second option is for you to become a monthly supporter by buying us a coffee on a reoccurring basis. By setting up a monthly donation, you become an integral part of our podcast sustainability. And we get to continue to create the content you love with confidence, knowing that we have a reliable source of funding coming in. 
And we love you for that. Listen, head over to the show notes and click the link there or go to buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com backslash spiritually sassy show. And I just want to say thank you so much to all of you who have already been buying us a coffee. We love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Your generosity is so wonderful. And we're incredibly grateful for your support. What's up, my loves, and welcome back to the Spiritually Sassy Show, where we are redefining what it means to be spiritual in the modern world. I'm your host, Sade Simone, and it's an honor and a joy to be here with you today. And listen, before I get into talking about the guests, don't forget that your ratings, reviews, subscribing to the show, sharing the show, it all matters. So please help us keep the momentum of the Spiritually Sassy Show full power. Thank you in advance. So let's talk about today's guest, Brian Johnson. I know for some of you who you hear this name, it's immediately like controversy. I don't want to hear about it. Oh my God. Da, 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 da. When I brought up his name to the team that I wanted to have him on a show, half of the team was like, hell no. And half the team was like, oh my God, yes, please tell me more. I'm so intrigued. And it is a really interesting, um, it is a really interesting thing what he's doing. And I, I can see how it can bring up a lot of controversy. Don't let me guide your perspective. I'm just sharing you how divided the team was and how I was intrigued. And, and I'll let you make up your mind after you hear the episode. Let me give you a little bit of background on Brian. Brian Johnson is the world's most measured human being. Johnson sold his company Braintree Venmo to PayPal for $800 million in 2013. Since then, he's been investing millions to slow and reverse his aging. In 2021, he set a world record by reducing his epigenetic age by 5.1 years in seven months. Johnson publicly blogs sharing at no cost his protocols, data, and learnings for others to implement and improve upon. He's a creator of Project Blueprint, which its goal is to achieve humanity and Earth-scale cooperation starting within self. In 2023, Johnson launched Rejuvenation Olympics, an epigenetic leaderboard assessing one's speed of aging. Of the 1,700, 1,750 people who have been using this state-of-the-art aging algorithm to track their progress in longitudinally, I can't pronounce that word to save my life, Johnson ranks at number one in speed of age reduction. He's also the founder and CEO of Kernel, creator of the world's first mainstream non-invasive neuroimaging system and the OS Fund, where he invested $100 million in the predictable engineering of atoms, molecules, and organisms into companies now collective, collectively valued over $6 billion. He is the, he's an out, outdoor adventure enthusiast, pilot, and author of children's books, Code 7 and the Proto Project. 
Get into the episode, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Big love to you. Hello, my dear, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's truly an honor and a joy to talk to you. You are breaking ground. You're a trailblazer, so you fit the mold for what we're doing here so well. So first question, I think it's what's on everyone's mind is talk to us about the Blueprint uh, Project. You Okay, so you, you could say that Blueprint is about health and wellness, and I would offer an alternative frame. Let's say that we are trying to imagine what our lives are going to be like in, in 20 years' time. And let's just say in 20 years, you and I are like, you know what? Life is so much better now than it was 20 years ago because our health and wellness has never been better. You know, global rates of, of mental disorders is down. Uh, people's happiness and satisfaction is up. We don't have the loneliness pandemic, you know, pandemics, like all these things that happen. What are we doing in that time and place that actually makes that possible? And that's what I've tried to do with Blueprint is I've tried to time travel and say, what will our future existence be like? And can I do that now in a version of myself? And so I think that's really what gets people is that it's so different than what people are accustomed to today. Their response is just like, uh, not, you know, it's like not status quo alert, not status quo alert. And then they're identifying in me, I'm not normal. But really, it's the, the thought exercise of this is the future brought to our present. And it's shocking sometimes when you see that kind of disparity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But from, from what I've seen um, from researching you and watching your videos and everything and seeing your content pop up from every angle, my dad's sending me things and people are saying, look what he's doing. Don't talk to him and or talk to him. Let's have him on a show and please don't talk to him. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm on the I'm over here like I there's something about this guy that I am drawn to. It's like an energetic thing. There is something about your presence that I'm interested in. However, and I don't say this, however, as like a, but uh, negating something, but I'm just saying, and I'm, from what I've seen, it's a lot of like physical focus. What you're, what you're, there's a lot about the food, the supplements, the biohacking machines. And when you talk about well-being and happiness mm -hmm. and satisfaction, mm -hmm. like how did this, the blueprint actually help someone's emotional state, psychological state, like yeah. spiritual awakening per se? Yeah. Uh, what I'm really trying to solve for is we are our best as a species when we can cooperate. And oftentimes we struggle to cooperate because we can't agree on things. Now, when it comes to health and wellness, there's a near infinite number of opinions and it's difficult for any of us to know what to do. And so if we're trying to create a coordinated effort and we want to be our best self, whether it be a spiritual awakening, whether it be health, whether it be like whatever your objective is for your conscious experience, there's this really challenging question of what do I do? What do I eat? You know, do I exercise? Do I meditate? Like, what do I do? And so what I'm trying to do with Blueprint is I'm trying to say, okay, I agree. We have this major problem of agreeing on what one should do. 
So I'm going to say, I'm, I've been trying to punch through the noise and say, instead of reading blog posts and listening to charismatic people talk about this thing and that thing, I'm going to let the data speak. And so I did what no one had ever done before. I gave my body to a system of science and technology. And I said, okay, organs of my body, all 78 organs, you speak directly via data, liver, pancreas, lungs, heart, and let the science and data do the analysis and come back with a protocol that I will then follow with exactitude. And that has enabled me to punch through the noise. And so if someone wants to say something about whether Blueprint is good or bad, they can't just offer their opinion. They have to reconcile with the data. And data is much more stubborn than another opinion. And so I'm really trying to punch through and say, you know what? We as a species do really well when we cooperate. And in order to cooperate, we have to agree on some basic things. And I'm trying to create stability in conversation and say, you know what? If we're going to have this wild conversation about health and wellness, let's at least baseline it with something we can agree on, these data and these measurements. And so I'm really trying to steady in a, in a world of where truth is not known and everyone has an opinion and everyone's opinion is equal and we can't agree on anything ever. I'm trying to stabilize our society and say, all right, here's one version of trying to stabilize a conversation. Mm -hmm. Okay. I love this. I love this approach. And what have you like noticed in your own like emotional state that has changed through go undergoing this like massive um, exploration? If I could time travel to my former self and I could explain what it would be like to be me now, I wouldn't have believed it. And I would say that I, I probably have been on a roller coaster of, of more highs and more lows than maybe the average person because I've chosen entrepreneurship. And in entrepreneurship, you're riding these very high highs and very low lows. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a tumultuous path. And so I maybe acclimated myself to life is a roller coaster of these huge movements. And the highs are great, the lows are awful. And I'd say now my my emotional and intellectual and uh, I'd say spiritual self is much more st is more steady than it has been in my entire life. Very few things uh, really knock me up a notch and very few things that very few things knock me down. I'm very steady and I love the steadiness of, you know, come what will, I'm just fine with it all. And this has resulted in, I've never been as nice as a person. I've never been more considerate. I've never been more empathetic. I'm just a better person than I ever have been in my entire life. And so I, I, I don't think uh, my former self would have believed me if I would have told him that, that I I could basically have an existence with this, uh, these characteristics of steadiness. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. In the Buddhist uh, scriptures, the word that you're describing is called equanimity. Mm. It's a psychological stability, mm -hmm. no matter what comes at you. Yes. And one beautiful uh, phrase that one of my teachers gave me as I was leaving a 30 day retreat this past November, November, uh, 2022, she says, Whatever comes, let it come. Whatever goes, let it go. Have no need for anything. And she says this, if you could put all of the Buddhist canonical texts and scriptures and literature into a few sentences, this would be it. And what you're describing is that, which it feels 
really unattainable, but I can hear it in your voice. And as I'm watching on the screen, I could see that there is that deep core. You arrived at this really strong psychological core, which is beautiful. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed. So what your, your um, did you reference her as your teacher? Yeah. Okay. So in uh, what your teacher constructed with words, I would say maybe represents the data in me. So if we said, okay, that she just gave you those words and you were like, okay, I, I understand what you're trying to say and I can intuitively map my subjective experience to this thing. And then you, can, you have that framework to cycle through when ups come, when downs come, how to go through it. And then if we pose the question, if we looked at a human and we looked at the data from the person's hormones and their exercise capacity and their triglycerides and their cholesterol, like, you know, hundreds of biomarkers, what would the data tell us is the profile of the person that has that? And to me, it's a, it's a new way of understanding humans. So we use words because it's our best technology. Data is an additive technology to say, okay, now we have the state. What does it mean? Like, if the body were to report out, how close are you to the state? you know, wh what does the data represent? Mm, I love that. And that reminds me a little bit of when they put like Matthew Ricard, he used to be a, a molecular biologist turned Buddhist monk. I think they put them on uh, him on a cover of Scientific American and they scanned his brain to see like, what is the brain of someone who mm -hmm. is uh, apparently happy. Mm -hmm. And I'm biased because as a Buddhist and also someone that loves his work and his mission and everything, so I'm a little biased. But the data has shown that his um, the the brain scans that his amygdala and and mm -hmm. you know more science than I do, but I'm just going to speak from what I what I digested from that from that um, from the article. His amygdala was smaller, which apparently it's like the stress response in the brain, and his prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. was larger, mm -hmm. which is like the mm -hmm. CEO of happiness in the brain. And we know that through meditation and through you know um, carrying positive thoughts in your mind, through being kind to other people, through taking care of your body and caring for others, all these things, which is what he has shown to do, mm -hmm. uh, proves has proven with data. However, here's the Brian Johnson difference with uh, this molecular biologist turned Buddhist monk. It's he doesn't have this, and I might be totally wrong, he doesn't have the the diet that you have, which I was like, I want that, but I was like, how do I order it? And it's not available yet, yeah. which I can't wait to it to be. Um, and he doesn't have the biohacking tools yeah. that you have and this enormous village of doctors helping you out um, and the exercise routine. And he doesn't live in the Western hemisphere, mm -hmm. which means mm -hmm. different microbiomes, different toxicity, all those things. That's he right. lives in, in the Himalayas, which is like the food is very, very like hardly ever anything that is mm -hmm. raw. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. when I, when I'm living in a part of the world, you never eat fruits or vegetables are always cooked down to soup level almost, you know? So I'm, it's, it's almost like if someone, the path to it and I hope I'm, I'm making my point, right. It's like, you could approach it from a purely sort of biological, physiological approach and arrive at a at a strong psychological and spiritual inner state, mm -hmm. or you mm -hmm. could approach it from a mm -hmm. psychological and spiritual state and also arrive at this biological uh, mm -hmm. state of, mm -hmm. of well-being. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I would say that's really well said. And if we if we map the history, I'd say that for thousands of years, 
uh, prominent spiritual teachers to me have more been a mirror of the technology of their time. And so if you just look at what spiritual arisings happened when, it was a direct reflection of technological capability. And then you know, we happened to choose somebody in that time and place who captured the zeitgeist of that era through some kind of framework. And for this time, words have been the most powerful technology humans have had to capture this zeitgeist and then create spiritual teachings. And what I'm proposing with Blueprint, uh, someone made the quip online that if Buddhism were invented now, it'd be Brian Johnson's Blueprint. It, it's a, I'm simply, I've captured the zeitgeist of our time. And I've basically said, if, okay, if you human are trying to choose your endpoint, call it enlightenment, or let's say you're an athlete and you're after performance, or, or let's say you're after uh, whatever, whatever your, your game in life is, then there is a scientific and algorithmic approach to doing that. And I can say, okay, now we have the technological capacity to measure thousands of biomarkers in our body. We have the ability to look at scientific data, which we've built up over the past couple uh, decades. And then we have artificial intelligence to help us run these algorithms and improve it. And then we, we can run these things. And you can certainly have the psychological element be additive to it as your, as your spiritual practice. Uh, it's just a, a new way for us to achieve our desired states in a quantified algorithmic fashion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But do you have a spiritual practice? I, I think about it in two ways. One is Blueprint is a spiritual practice. It is uh, specifically the spiritual practice is, I've said, uh, as... As I awoke and realized I'm a conscious being, and as I continually work to peel back the layers of my own consciousness, and I try to achieve ever deeper layers of self-awareness, I the, the thing that's most apparent to me is the unruly nature of my mind and the difficulty of taming that monster. Now, I can definitely make strides in that direction and I can be better, but to truly harness my mind, I mean, you know, I guess that's the ultimate objective. And so if that is the core difficulty, if I'm, a, if, if I'm putting my finger on the source of my suffering is my mind, then I've basically said a blueprint, okay, then I'm going to uh, set my beautiful mind aside. I, I, I appreciate you, mind. I love you, mind. I appreciate your existence. I'm also going to set you aside, and I'm going to give my body authority to run itself. And so this is the biggest change I, I'm introducing in Blueprint, which is in part why it may be controversial. I'm letting my heart have the authority to be in charge, not my mind. And if you think about this, this in many ways is on par with the, the, the revolutionary nature of Buddhism, where it was like the mind isn't the ultimate authority. It's this thing that you know generates this essence, but it's not ultimately the thing that's in charge. And we as a society have given our mind unchecked authority over everything we are and do. And I'm saying that is not a good idea. And what is the evidence? <laughs> 
in every second of every day of all of our behaviors. It's how we treat ourselves. It's how we treat planet Earth. It's how we treat each other. Uh, our mind is the nemesis. Mm -hmm. I love this. And because the mind is un, is going haywire, completely out of control, then we are, you know, uh, consuming shitty foods and consuming, you know, all kinds of toxicity through what we're watching, listening, mm -hmm. engaging mm -hmm. and doing. And therefore, we're not working out. Therefore, we're not meditating. Therefore, we're not praying. We're not doing any of the things that are potentially going to uh, help us arrive at that peaceful state of feeling satisfied without the need of any external stimulation. And what you're saying, if, if, I'm, if I'm getting it right now, I know I'm getting it right, which is why I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's like if we bring the body to a state of optimal physiological, biological well-being, then the mind will steady itself. The mind will rest and won't have as many, you know, cravings, as much hatred, as much ignorance mm -hmm. as in Buddhism, we say those are the three poisons. So mm -hmm. would you agree with that? I do. Yeah. I mean, if you, let's just say, let's try to, a, a lot of the criticism I get is people say, you're not living life. And what they mean by that is I'm not drinking alcohol and staying out late with friends. I'm not eating junk food. I'm not having pizza. I'm not participating in the cultural norms that people do. And that feels threatening. And therefore I get accused of not living life. Now, let's just take the argument and say, all right, let's, let's articulate what is the virtue of junk food? What is the virtue of pizza? What is the virtue of alcohol? I mean, and can those things stand on their own two feet? Now, if you go back a layer and say, well, we value freedom of choice above all things, and therefore it doesn't matter if there's virtue in drinking or, or junk food or whatever, because the ultimate virtue we care, we value in life is this freedom of choice. Okay. I, you know, you can, we can work your way through it, but you have to go to that angle because you can't find virtue in junk food alone. And we all know it. We know how it makes up. We, we know how we feel after eating junk food. We know how we look in eating junk food and no one wants it. And you can make up all the pretty stories you want about how it's living life or whatever you want to do, but we know there's no standalone virtue in junk food. And so people go to these extreme lengths to try to concoct virtue in their choices and they're masking the reality. It's not virtuous and they have to go to other backstops. And this is the thing, which is why I think in part, why I'm so controversial is I'm a mirror to them. And so their commentary is not about me. Their commentary is about themselves. I a hundred percent agree. <laughs> and I, I hear this a lot too. I'm six years sober uh, and I'm not California sober. You know, I am like proper sober, no drugs, no alcohol, no pot, no mind altering substance whatsoever. And no shame in the game. I feel like I have, I feel, no, I do have a lot of friends who are in the health and wellness spirituality space who use a lot of different uh, means to enter into that God realm, enter into the celestial mm -hmm. space or achieve that state of equanimity and total satisfaction. Um, so whatever gets you there, right? Um, I think that's the ultimate thing. And I do feel like the way I eat and the way I live my life and, and, and show, show up in the world is a mirror to, um, to 
people's shadows and mm -hmm. what they don't want to see about themselves. And I think your approach to life is very triggering because it does take a high level of discipline. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about free will and freedom of choice, I go as far as saying that, honey, no one has free will because you're yeah. just, you know, because yeah. in Buddhism, we, we operate under the natural law of karma. And it's like, you're just living out the consequence of your past actions. So if, if in this moment you are getting drunk and high and overeating and and watching porn and doing all the, mm -hmm. the sort of self-soothing trauma response mm -hmm. ways that mm -hmm. we have been um, hallucinated and conditioned to do, then you're self-producing a self that is toxic. Not the whole self, but uh, uh, your tendencies mm -hmm. may, be to may mm -hmm. be leading you to more toxicity. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with that. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. One interesting way to think about it, which I found is there's a an analog to this where in the early American colonies, there were 13 colonies and they were just, they were debating intensely whether or not to break from Britain and become an independent country with a democracy. And the country was split and the the people's opinions were passionate. And Thomas Paine wrote this pamphlet, uh, Common Sense. It was the most widely read pamphlet of the colonial American period. It was the first thing to go viral in, in the pamphlets. And he argued that the, the the British monarch was a corrupt monarch, that it didn't act in the best interest of the colonies, it didn't understand what was really going on uh, in on the ground, and it was basically a terrible manager of the colonies, and the colonies would be a, a much better manager of themselves. And you know, Payne was proposing that the democracy was a, was a good idea, and to a lot of people, this idea that you're telling me instead of a trusted monarch, we're going to have us, <laughs> like we humans are going to vote on stuff and talk about stuff like that's equally scary. And you know, ultimately the, the United States, the colonies did vote uh, independence uh, from the king, which led to the creation of the United States. But we're in a similar situation with us where in, in our personal lives, our minds are the monarchs. Our minds do what they want, when they want, how they want, and they make up all these pretty stories to justify their existence. And the revolution I'm proposing is uh, a more democratic approach with the body. Empower the heart and the lungs and the liver and the pancreas. Let your organs vote, not just on what you eat, but what activities you do when you go to bed. I mean, it's, it's a radical way of thinking. And the difficulty here is in the United States, you had people in the colonies who could say, you know what? I like I like this idea of democracy. I'm going to stand up for this independence and I'm going to revolt. I'm willing to fight for this. The problem is our organs don't have a voice. It's not like your heart is going to be like, you know, on social media being like, I'm the alternative voice to Brian here. <laughs> and I'm, I'm lobbying for a different way of being because currently he's crushing me with his habits. And so the only way to, to truly create a revolution is to give your body a voice so your, your body can speak independent of you and your mind. And that's the thing is our mind crushes all other voices inside of us. And it says, I'm the only voice that should be listened to. Every other voice should be, should be um, out. And mm -hmm. again, it's, it's very threatening to people because they, it's like the monarch. If the monarch's like, hold tight, I'm the one in power. I don't want my, my power questioned. So it's a very threat. It's, it's, potentially the most threatening proposition a human can encounter because it gets at the one thing that they have ultimately in control is their ability to choose. And if they give that out to some other power source, even if it's within self, it's still highly threatening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Okay, there's so much to unpack here. And a couple of things are coming up for me thinking about this. Like, of course, you know about like transgenerational trauma, right? The trauma that lingers through chemistry and the stuff that's that's lived through your family tree. Um, the, so all the unprocessed pain that has happened in your family tree is living in us. Do you think that the work you're doing is on yourself is about breaking these generational curses? I mean, granted, I have a very colorful family tree of like mental illness, suicide, yeah, yeah, yeah. addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got the full, yep. like you name it, we have it. You know, my mom just recently died of cancer and it was cancer in like five or six different parts of her body. Um, so I just mm. went through that. And, mm. you know, in my own right, I'm doing things to, to end that curse that's been in my lineage to speak kind of like more spiritual um, colloquial language. But would you agree that the work you're doing biologically is helping to end the oppression and violence that has happened through your family tree? Yeah. First, sorry to hear about your loss. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say I, I, sh I have some similarities with you. Yeah. Um, The answer is, I don't know. And this is the important thing about Blueprint is there's a really important role for us, all of us humans to play in knowing what we do know and what we don't know. I could absolutely open my mouth and opine, but my opinion means nothing because I don't have the data, I don't know the science, and therefore it'd be... Uh, foolish of me to try to engage in this conversation and a disservice to anyone listening because then I would uh, I would be taking advantage of the things I do know and then it'd be confusing for people to discern uh, what things I speak authority on and which things I cannot. Wow, that is very beautiful, very honorable. Yay to living an honest life. Thank you for that. Very, very good. Okay, so I have a couple th a couple things that are coming up for me here too. Um, let's talk about sleep because I did see somewhere that you have like the best sleep in the world. Could I say that? That I seen that somewhere? Did I read a headline of some newspaper saying something like that? I mean, <laughs> and I was like, I want that too. I mean, granted, I do have a great, I do have great sleep. I do sleep, and I do think that people don't sleep because their, their, their mind wants everything to have some sort of like linearity. Mm. And when we enter sleep, there's nothing linear. The, 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 the continuum of the self dissolves and it's so surreal. So we are scared of entering to that place of like dream space. Mm. Cause it's like, I don't want to dissolve this self-existing self that we think exists from its own side. So it's, that's my sort of psycho spiritual mm. analysis of why we can't sleep. Of course, hormones and all the biological markers too. But I want to talk about sleep and I also want you to open up hopefully about your dreams mm. to us. If, if I subjectively assess myself, like what is the number one thing that most influences my conscious experience? It's sleep. We all know what it feels like to have an amazing night's sleep and what the day's like when we do that, we all know what it's like to have a bad night's sleep. The difference between hope and despair is a good night's sleep. And so as I go about my day and I'm sizing up how, what kind of father am I going to be in this moment with my child? What kind of friend am I going to be to those around me? What kind of coworker? 
What kind of thoughts am I going to have? What kind of participant am I going to be in society? Sleep is the number one contributor for all those variables. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say, like, I, I do have, I use Whoop as a, a wearable, and I, I do have a near a perfect 100% sleep performance score for four months straight. My, my sleep is quality is in the 99th percentile, and my recovery score, which is like this metric Whoop uses for your HRV and a few other variables, is in the, also in the 99th percentile. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say I'm... Uh, better than average in my sleep performance. We can't say better than average. We got to go a little bit deeper, given that one out of every three adults, you know, struggles with like um, insomnia symptoms. So it's to have to be able to actually rest. And and I think a lot of people who are wanting to create a new life for themselves, they can't dream a new dream because they're not resting and there's no rest. Our society of this toxic capitalistic approach of of produce, produce, produce. Mm. The more you produce is the more worthy of love you are, the better of a mm. human being you are, the more you have to show for. Uh, keeps people without the capacity to just rest deeply. And, you know, to quote, to paraphrase his holiness, the Dalai Lama, he said, the greatest meditation is sleep. Mm. And and I believe it mm. too, because it's it's so much of what you said. It's like, unless we're resting, our, our minds are, are, you know, chaos mm. the next day mm. and we don't have any patience. So we don't have capacity to have to let our empathy bridge us into compassion. So caring for other people becomes a burden mm -hmm. and thinking about, you know, making the world a better place is like, hell no, I got to think about me. It's all about me. So that leads to like selfish tendencies. And then we know what happens, you know, there's research that shows that people who say the words a, a lot words of like me mine and i a lot in their vocabulary has shown the data to those people having um heart problems and i'm like wow that's like such a such a spiritual thing to like mm -hmm. dissolve selfishness mm -hmm. to develop your heart on a purely psycho spiritual babble mm -hmm. but to have mm -hmm. data that shows that it's like oh my god that's so cool that we can actually say yo stop being so selfish it's going to be good for your physiological heart and your spiritual heart which i love that i love when the science and spirituality mm -hmm. like merge mm -hmm. and i think this conversation is very much about that Yeah, these in this conversation, I guess I, my mind is going to. For many things in society, we look back in history and we kind of shake our heads in disbelief, and with a wry smile, contemplate, boy, you know, glad we're not them, or thinking we're superior to them because they did these silly things that we no longer do, like apply leeches as a, a medical or not wash hands in between surgeries before they understood germs or like these basic things. And it seems to me that so many of today's common practices will soon be seen as insane. Uh, this idea of not getting, not prioritizing sleep will be incomprehensible to our future selves. And willfully eating junk food and you know all these other things we do culturally now that we we craft these pretty stories to justify to protect our our um our vices we'll just shake our heads in dismay and just think oh like, we're so superior to that former version of self but we just can't see it in this moment we are trapped which is 
the ultimate, which is the continuous condition of the human race is we're trapped in these circumstances and seeing outside of it is the hardest thing possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you mind sharing about your dreams? Like, do you dream every night and do you remember your dreams in the morning? I do. I, it, I would say nearly all of my best ideas come in my dreams. Wow. And so every night before I go to bed, I assign my brain a problem, not obsessively. I don't, I don't, if I do it, if it's, uh, if it's done out of a state of anxiety or pressure, I'll ruminate. So I'll, I'll have a night where you're just looping through these thoughts all night long and you wake up non-rested, but it will be a very subtle uh, suggestion to my mind that I'm working on a, a certain problem and I'm kind of thinking about it this way and I'll then just all night just kind of roll through it. But yes, I do remember them. And my team oftentimes jokes with me that they deal with dreaming Brian more than they do daytime Brian, because the majority of the ideas I express, I attribute, I, I, I uh, acknowledge came in my dreams. Wow. That's so cool. I remember when I worked in fashion um, and I, I hope I'm rem- remembering this right, but Tom Ford uh, who was at the head of Gucci at that point, used to have a bunch of post-its in the, behind his uh, on the wall of where his uh, bed was, where he would like wake up in the middle of the night and like sketch a dress yeah. out yeah. and then put it on the on the wall and go back to sleep. And he would pick up all those sticky notes and and then that would be like the collection. Yeah. And I I my dreams are not you know, helpful in that way. They're more like surreal, (laughs) strangely. I think last night I dreamed that there was like these three dogs jumping out of my balcony and I'm on the sixth floor and they didn't break their legs. And I was like looking for them to see if they were there. And then that's like, I woke up, I'm like, what is this? The the symbolic meaning of these three dogs jumping and not breaking their legs and me searching for them. You know, I don't, I don't even have a pet. So it's like a strange thing. Yeah, I mean, if this is the, like the dreaming is, you know, dreaming can be fun and it can be enjoyable. And behind all of Blueprint, it, I, I guess I, I like to go to the rational, I like to engage with people in a rational conversation, even though we aren't rational, we're emotional. So if someone in the 1990s were having this conversation right now and the argument was, you know, do you prioritize health and wellness to try to squeeze out a few more years of life, or do you live fast and die young? Right. This is kind of like the age of in the America of like the eighties rockers, 90 rockers of the, the life of debauchery and whatnot. And I can, I can understand a person's emotional and intellectual approach to say, you know what? Like it's just not worth it to me to live out my sixties, seventies and eighties. I'd rather live a really wild life up to my forties and fifties and call it good. And you know, I, I don't think I could um, come back with anything and say like that's not like that's fine. Like I understand that, but in in the year twenty twenty three where we're at now, that's no longer the case. That's no longer the argument because the the technology and science uh, behind aging is moving at such a speed. It is no longer known how long and how well we can live. Now people try to put numbers on it, like a hundred and one twenty and one forty and one sixty. I don't think, uh, I personally don't think any of those numbers are based on anything real that, um, that one, one could reasonably map that possibility set. I don't know why it's just totally unknown of how long and how well. 
And Mm -hmm. given that's the case, the argument now is don't uh, like, okay, uh, make your health and wellness your number one priority because if you're around for these radical life extending and and health extending technologies, you may be able to live, you know, some unknown period of time. And so a long time. And so it's worth making that gamble. Now, maybe it won't work out and maybe we, we won't make these breakthroughs and you'll end up living like a 70, 89 year old life as it were without the debauchery. But this is the, the fundamental thing of where we're at as a species is this is what I'm arguing. It's almost like Pascal's wager. It is in everyone's best interest to make that wager to have a ticket of, of entrance, admittance to the future. No other uh, human in the history as history has had this opportunity, and we do now if we're if we're wise enough to see the opportunity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and to kind of I know you said we don't know, but w- do you have an age that you expect to live up to? My loves, let's take a quick break from the episode because I gotta share something with you that is delicious, mind blowing, and and kind of really sweet of a surprise for me. Backstory, which probably all of you know um, by now, I have struggled with acne scars um, for as long as I can remember. And I say struggle as in I've always wanted to not have them, you know? And of course, cystic acne is gone, which is wonderful, but the scars are there and they're deep and they are, um, they're, they're always like, good morning, Sa, how are you, darling? Nice to see you again. And I have spent so much money trying to get rid of these scars. I have, you know, literally gotten, I mean, I, it's pointless to mention, I have done pretty much all the things available under the sun to be able to change the, the texture of my skin, to be able to say goodbye to the acne scars for me, for me. Because for you, if you think I don't look cute with my acne scars, uh, it is a reflection of the quality of your mind, uh, okay? Let's just put that into perspective for a second. So anyways, I get sent, I get sent a lot of products all the time. People that want to participate in podcasts, people that want me to talk about their products. And I'm extremely fierce about the brands and the products that I talk about because I have to be a trustworthy source for my community, my students. And so anyways, I have uh, I have found, no, this product found me and I'm so glad it did. It's called One Skin. And the product's necessarily not built for acne scars. It's built for a variety of other different benefits. Uh, which I don't need them right now, or I don't think I will need them because I'm fine um, with the way my skin is aging. However, if you're interested in transforming your aging process in a way that is healthier looking or more relaxed looking or whatever it may be for you, the point is I want to share with you this product founded by Four female PhD level longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. The product that I'm holding in my hand right now is called One Skin OS One Face. I wash my face and I put this on and I put sunscreen on and that is all. And in one week, honey, I swear to you, it is wild. 
the, comp the, the complexity now, the texture of my skin is changing so much. I'm like, this can't be true, you know, because I always dream of a product like this, but hey, now it is here, you know? And unlike most skincare products on the market, one skin works deeper than the surface level and it's designed to promote healthier skin from the inside out. And check this out. In an independent 12-week clinical study, OS1 Face, which is the product that I'm holding in my hand, the product that I'm talking about, demonstrated uh, efficacy by strengthening the skin's barrier and significantly reducing visible signs of aging. In the study, they were able to have these epic results. Wrinkles were diminished in 87% of users and 95.5% of the people who were in the in study in this clinical trial experienced improved firmness. One skin is for everyone that wants to prevent or reverse the signs of aging with groundbreaking approach. One skin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root cause of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. It's time for you to get to experience a new skin health routine. And I'm offering you, as a listener of the podcast, a 15% discount when you use cold capital S-A-H, my first name, you should know by now, at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at oneskin.co with code S-A-H. And it's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. And the code is capital S-A-H. And enjoy, my darling, because we only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better age healthy with one skin. Do you have an age that you expect to live up to? I mean, to me, this is like the, the predictions around artificial intelligence. You know, every, AI experts have been predicting AI milestones since the beginning of AI. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone ever who's gotten it right. <laughs> and so, and even if there was an outlier, how would you ever know to identify which outlier is making the actual prediction? So I just don't, I don't think anyone can predict the future of AI at all. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true with our lifespans and health spans. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone possesses the knowledge to make any prediction that anyone should rely upon. The only thing I, I think is relevant is if I just look at the improvement curves of uh, technology and our ability to computationally approach biology and create new drugs, uh, I'd say I'm bullish on the idea that progress is probably going to be faster. Now, like what is it, it going to yield? I don't know, but the curves to me are the most compelling thing based upon that data of I'd rather be around to see how this is going to manifest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I I don't know if you know about the ACE score, adversary childhood experiences, and it kind of uh, tracks. It was it was a study done by um, I think it was Kaiser Permanente, and it, it kind of became like a, a backbone of how um, it's not propagated, you know, massively enough, but it shows that the childhood experiences that you've had, the traumatic childhood experiences that you've had, will then dictates 
when you um, your life expectancy and mm. and given my mom's ACE score, she died at sixty. It was pretty much like just it was like right on the nose of the scientific data. Mm. And so I'm doing, you know, I'm I'm actually you know doing everything I can um, most of the time to you know, break that and then to live a little longer, mm -hmm. you know, and simultaneously, I'm also like mapping out my life to like, maybe I'm 36 now. I don't know what my, my biological age is. I know yours is uh, a lot younger. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it's interesting to, to have this view to, to, to be dancing with our mortality every day and to then be like, okay, if I'm 36 and my mom died at 60, maybe I have a, a couple extra years. This is the halfway point for me. Like, how do I want to live? And the question for you is, um, you know, are you afraid of death? And are you trying to defy the, the death God mm -hmm. per se? Mm -hmm. I, uh, based upon my subjective uh, awareness, I have zero emotional arousal thinking about death. <laughs> I have no fear. I have no apprehension. I have zero emotions attached to death. And so, no, I would say, uh, but I have an insatiable appetite for life. I mean, that's what I can register with my emotional state is I so much, uh, I really appreciate being alive. I deeply appreciate my existence. And I, I spent a decade in chronic depression. So I know what it's like to not want life. I know what it's like mm -hmm. to want to end my life. And so having that as the contrast, that the emotion of wanting life is, 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 uh, is motivating <laughs> and it's really pleasant, mm -hmm. much more than, mm -hmm. than no hope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So you think that, I mean, you think like this is, um, you, 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 like, was there a specific moment in your life that you're like, something's got to change. Like, I want to live. That's sort of like the life-affirming thought that passed your mind, the, the life-affirming inspirational feeling that visited your body. Like, do you remember the exact moment? I mean, I remember like my moments of like deep, you know, rock bottom moments and then deep moments of, of awakening and, mm -hmm. and feeling like, wow, I, I want to live. I want to do life. I want to create and share and create impact and, 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 you know, make, the world a better place for my little mm -hmm. corner of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, do you remember that? Was there a specific day that you cracked? It, it was my emergence from a decade of chronic depression. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I understand why people commit suicide. It's rational. I empathize with it. And you know, I didn't do it because I had three little kids, but otherwise completely understandable when you're in that state, uh, you just can't see anything else. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, the other day I had the, the retirement house, their social media group there. Uh, I think there's six people. They're all over the age of 70 and they visited me and we were talking about, we had a great time. They're really funny people. And they emanated a love and appreciation for life. I just uh, oozed it. And I contrasted their dispositions with many people I know in 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s who 
who maybe like disparage life in some ways, you know, like it, it's like maybe they feel treated unfairly or maybe they feel like they're, there's some self-disappointment or like whatever the negative feeling is uh, where they really struggle with existence. And, and this, this group, boy, did they make me excited about life and appreciate it. And every single day they got to live was such a treat. And it left a set, a, such a lasting impact on me. And I thought, I want to be like them every day to value life to that degree and, and experience it so fully. And the contrast of other people in more youthful stages of their life having a minuscule amount of the same appreciation and just kind of grinding through life. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's leaving the depression and then it's probably having the contrasting inspiration points from certain people of what a true appreciation for existence really is. And this is also something I think is potentially relevant for the future is, you know, we, the fact that we exist in this galaxy is pretty remarkable. You know, are there other life forms? Maybe we'll find out, but the fact that we're, that we're here (laughs) and that we're alive and we get to experience every day, uh, there's a version of us where we'd say, this is the most precious thing that could ever have happened. We're so lucky to just arrive and be conscious. Let's protect it with everything we have, like above all protect our existence. And we aren't there yet. You know, we're very much a, a self-destructive species. And maybe it's because we come from this historical place where we all die and we're accustomed to dying. So like, why not just like grind it out? But there's another version of us where, uh, you know, death is not inevitable or it's dramatically extended. And we treat life with the sacredness that I think it warrants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you say death is not inevitable, do you mean that you want to like upload your consciousness to a computer or something like that? I mean, I don't know these things. I'm just curious. Yeah, about it. I yeah. There's a there's a few places this conversation usually usually goes. Like one is I'll be accused of of seeking now immortality, uh, and people just uh, that's not a, a laudable trait. You know, people aren't like, oh, cool. They're like, oh, you're a sinister, vain asshole you know it's like it's very much a, an insult uh for someone to be searching for that kind of thing uh so this use of insult against me and number two is these ideas break the human's brain like we our brains are not built to understand eternity we just can't and so the the thing our brains can understand is tomorrow so if you and i both are posed the question do we want to live tomorrow there's a decent chance you and i are both going to say yep we have stuff planned and we want to do it, and we're excited about it. And so to me, the only question we need to answer as a species right now is, do we want to live tomorrow? And everything else follows. So like uploading consciousness, you know, like how long we like, whatever, it doesn't matter. All that matters is we have uh, tomorrow. And then we get to arrive at tomorrow, and we get to opt in or opt out. And it's making the mm-hmm. best of these days. And if we start with that mentality, I think it's probably the more healthy condition. Otherwise, we just back ourselves into a corner and spiral down something our brains can't can't compute. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for the listener, like, what are the basics of that someone could start 
Like what's something that some that the listener could could start doing like right away? Yeah. Like what are a few things, you know? Cause when I go on your website and I start seeing them like, oh my goodness. Okay, hopefully you're gonna put something out there that it's like manageable where we can like, you know, participate into something yeah. and um, cause it, it does require a lot of work, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. to be able to arrive at, at the, at the level that you are in, um, but for the, for the listener who is working, you know, two jobs, who perhaps a single mom, mm -hmm. or perhaps is a struggling artist who is going out on the weekends, mm -hmm. is trying to drink less, whatever. I mean, speak to the, to the vast, uh, space, yep. like what can we do? Yeah, th this is. This is much more in our control and affordable than most people realize. So I would I would do the following things. Uh, uh, so first, I should say I've spent millions of dollars developing this protocol, and I've made it all available for free. So anybody can go to the website and learn exactly what I do. There's no secret thing going on. I have all of my diet, my supplements, my my therapies, all of it's published, and so it's all for free. So here's what I think I would suggest. Uh, for people listening. One is to the best of your ability, make your health and wellness your number one priority. Now, it, you have to really, you have to stop and think about this because we all live in a culture that prioritizes grind culture. And what grind culture says is no sacrifice is too big for your work accomplishments. So what that says is making our work accomplishments and achieving the status that is associated with this is worthy of our very best efforts and we choose to make our work accomplishments immortal, not ourselves. So our grind culture says work accomplishment is the thing that deserves immortality. And what I'm suggesting to you is by prioritizing, I need to come up with a word on this. Uh, I, need to, I need to come up with a, a contrary to grind culture, but prioritizing your health and wellness says, no, you are your best product. You are your target of immortality. Now, it doesn't mean you're going after immortality. It just means that you're after continued existence. You want tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow until you get sick of tomorrow's. And, uh, and so if you do that, then when it comes to bedtime, which you want to hit every single day, no matter what, ever, when your bedtime arrives, there is no excuse in existence minus some emergency that justifies you missing your bedtime. So if you get over that idea, you uh, prioritize your health, make it number one, and then you just say, okay, well, how does that happen? Well, I make my bedtime non-negotiable every day. And then I'd say the other thing on, on this is, so these are like philosophical concepts, so like prioritize your health. The other thing is to quantify how much self-aided destruction you engage in right now. And I call that SAD, S-A-D, self-aided destruction. And so I like to do keep points on this. So if you just say, look at today alone and mark a point down for each time you've done one of the following things, ate too much food, junk food, skipped exercise, um, didn't go to bed on time. So if you ate junk food twice, that's two points. <laughs> if you ate too much food twice, that's two points. And then look at your daily SAD score. You're probably in the range of like three to seven, as most people are in America today. And so the oftentimes the best anti-aging therapy 
is not to take a pill. It's to stop sad behaviors. It's as powerful as anything else. So stop eating too much food, stop eating junk food, do exercise and get to bed on time. And so these basics, they're free, they're available to everyone. And of course, some people have challenges, like they work night shifts or they have kids, they're more challenging. Uh, But those are definitely uh, available. And it's a much better starting point than like, you know, do you take this pill or that pill and, you know, all the more nuanced things of the program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love it. Okay. I love the sleep piece. Thank you for that. Because that's, that's like, you know, I, I like one thing that my mom loved you know, she was like, you have to floss every night. And I was like, oh, flossing is so fucking annoying. I don't like doing it. And it hurts and whatever. I got a water flosser now. So like when 9 p.m. comes around, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I'm like ready because I wake up really early too. Um, so like my 9 p.m. bedtime has been um, kind of, you know, systemic for the last little while because of traveling so much for work. But the water flosser, it's weird to say this, but it's like it kind of like gets me out of the couch because I like I like the feeling of going to bed with like a really fresh mouth, you know, and I put a couple drops of this uh, of this herbal um, thing in the in the water flosser. And it's just like, wow, all of a sudden I'm going to bed like. Yeah. Feeling amazing. Yeah. So that really does help for me too. And not eating past 6 p.m., right? Would you agree with like the last meal of the day to be, to give us time to digest a little bit? Yeah. I experimented with this over a few hundred days and I now have my last meal of the day at around 11 a.m. So I, I'm fasting for, you know, around, you know, nine, 10, 11 hours before I go to Wait, bed. so your last meal of the day, Brian, is at 11 a.m. And I love the way you talk. I've experienced with this for a couple hundred days. I, <laughs> you're <laughs> such a mathematical mind. Oh my goodness. It suits you. It suits you. Okay. So you talk to us about that and we're coming up to the, to the time, but I, I have like one more big question, but talk to me about this Yeah, real briefly. So- Cause I think the fasting thing, there's. We don't know. Some people are like, oh, I'm fasting and and they don't have the data to show yeah. and, it, and, and it feels a little bit like pretentious or like yeah. too privileged to be able to like stop eating at 11 a.m., yeah. you know? So give us the the data. Yeah. I the, the evidence on fasting, I don't think is there yet for a strong opinion on, you know, like how long and what the frequency and the protocol. So uh, this is, my fasting protocol is largely based on sleep. Going back to what is the number one thing that determines my conscious existence, my conscious experience more than anything, it's my sleep. And so I really build life around my sleep. And so I experimented with food consumption. So not only food consumption, but types of food. So breads and carbs and other things. And I've built this, we've built this protocol, you know, with sleep as a top priority. And so what I found is the current diet I have with my last meal of the day at 11 a.m. And I go to bed at 8.30 every night. And so I have nine and a half hours of fasting before I go to bed. When I do that, my resting heart rate is around, you know, 46 to 50 right before I go to bed. And if my resting heart rate is that, I'm, it's a high probability my night sleep is going to be great. Now I know, for example, if I eat at four or five, my resting heart rate is going to creep up. It's going to be around 51, 52, 53, and my sleep is not going to be as good. And so I've been able to see the, the, the variation of just a few beats per minute difference in my heart and how it affects my sleep. If I have a large mill, like a six or seven, which I've tried before, I, my heart rate's in like 56, 57 beats per minute. 
and I'm pretty sure, pretty guaranteed to get a bad night's sleep. And so I've tuned these variables. So again, this is like giving my body to the algorithm. Body, you tell me what to do instead of my mind haphazardly, you know, trying these things. And this is how I've dialed it in. Again, I, it's, it's reasonable to say that I, as far as I know, I have the best sleep statistics of anywhere in the world. Now, I'm sure there's people who, you know, are good as well. They just haven't shared their data. But yeah, I mean, I'm up there as among the best sleepers in the world. Mm-hmm. But so the rest of the day, there's like not even a smoothie and like a fruit or anything. It's just water and tea, maybe? That's right. Uh, there's no food. Wow. Okay. Cool. And then, I got some is, work to do. But, then, but this is uh, the important thing for Blueprint is this is not to say that others should do exactly what I do. This is to say, hey, this is a protocol that's been developed with science and technology and data. And it's a reference point for you. So what you do may be different, but at least you have a mm-hmm. reference point in your mind. I know some people who like to skip breakfast and lunch and they have a large dinner. Uh, they have the majority of the food in the evening. You know, that can work for them. So it's, this is not to say this is the only mm-hmm. way of doing things. Blueprint is a system that says we're going to make decisions based upon data and science we're not going mm-hmm. to use human opinion because like anybody can express an opinion about anything they want. And it really is not helpful because you just have a flood of opinions and everyone's still being chopped up in the seas. Mm-hmm. And you are fully vegan, right? I am. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the, the, I mean, I, I guess all of us um, are invited to go check out the, the, the blueprint project and look at the, you know, all the, the amazing things that you're eating in a day. Cause up to, I mean, I know that eating less, it's something that I've learned from my dad. We just got back from, um, walking 500 miles from, uh, France through Spain. Amazing. Uh, so it was about seven hours of walking a day and I'm over here eating a huge breakfast, not eating lunch and eating a huge dinner. And my dad is like eating these like tiny little meals. And like, I'm noticing myself being triggered because I'm like, and I'm noticing the the contrast of how much I'm eating, how how little he's eating, and I'm feeling like, mm-hmm. okay, what's going on here? But I'm also remembering um, because it w- that's the only thing we did for 32 days was this long walk. Um, I was tracking my sleep in a different way than I do when mm-hmm. I'm back in Los Angeles with all the work things, and I noticed with the heavy meal at night and the things I was eating, how it was impacting my sleep. Yeah. And most importantly, as you said, how I was waking up in the morning. Was I waking up excited yeah. and present and and kind or grumpy and That's miserable? Right. You know, it was pretty obvious that I was like, my dad was waking up like, you know, chatting up and like opening the windows and things. And I was like, dad, please, yeah. you know, like none of that joy right now. I need to like be in my, my slump for a little bit longer. Right. Yeah. So I think that's um, really, really something to take in. Okay. I have a last question and this is might be outside of the Brian Johnson um, um, scope, but I hope, I hope you take us there. Have you ever had a mystical experience? I have. Okay. Yeah. We, uh, I, I founded a company six years ago wanting to uh, build technology that quantifies the brain. We, we've built, as a, as a society, we've built amazing technology to look at our blood and uh, MRI to look at the structures of our body and fMRI to look at the, the function of our brains. But getting high-quality data from our brains is very hard. And so we still speak about our minds with words. You know, how are you feeling? 
what was that experience like? We use words instead of data to capture our mind. I wanted to, just like I'm doing a blueprint, data tells a much more precise story than words. And so we built the technology. Uh, it was impossibly hard to do, but we did it. And one of the first things we did is I measured uh, my brain uh, before, during, and after taking ketamine. And so I did 68 milligrams of intramuscular ketamine injection. And I measured my brain for 10 minutes a day for, for five days before, during the ketamine session, and then after. And so typically when you do, and I had a, um, a mystical experience in doing that. And now typically when you have those sorts of things, it's like, how was your experience? And it's like, you know, I would then try to use words and it'd be like, you know, I was in a different dimension and like blank and blank and blank. But all I have is words. The other person, it's very hard for them to understand if they haven't had that experience themselves. And so I was able to show what happened to my brain with a, uh, a chemical inducement to a mystical experience. And um, we're doing this for the help of drug development, for mental illness and uh, uh, cognitive decline. And so, yes, I've, done, I've had a mystical experience and I've also uh, quantified it in potentially the, uh, more robustly than anyone in the world. Mm-hmm. And what does the quantifiability look like? Like the different parts of the brain were lit lit up at the same time. Like what what does it look like? Yeah. You know, neurochemically or biologically. So we, I love where you take things. I love you're <laughs> you're like a true scientist at heart. It's like it's very interesting. I never, I never, you know, it's so it's so contrast to like how I lead in my world, but it's is great. I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a so think of um, this technology we have looks at the top part of the brain, the cortex. So think, imagine you're looking at the earth and that's our brain. And then imagine you're looking at flight patterns. So you see the flight path from uh, the UK to New York and from New York to Tokyo and whatnot. You can think of the brain the same way. We have these networks in our brains, these big pathways of communication. And so there's a lot of traffic from New York to London, but there's less traffic on these other routes. And so what the technology does is it maps your brain like a flight pattern map and it shows you, and then you can take these patterns and say, okay, these kinds of patterns, like activity that's very heavy in the New York region of your brain, you generally suggests blank, 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 and blank. And that when you have this kind of pattern arrangement, this means blank. And so when I did ketamine, it dramatically changed the network. So it's like, as if you just like washed over the globe and planes started flying brand new network patterns, creating these new city maps. And so we're able to see it. So it's still an emerging science on how much do we know about the patterns, when the patterns change, what does that mean? But we, ha- we know enough to make some reasonable statements about these patterns and what the pattern changes mean. And so in mine, we saw that it, I went in with a very fixed flight pattern in my brain. Ketamine scrambled it. And then over the next couple of days, my patterns rebuilt back up to their former state. And so you're basically looking at my brain in this big window of change and then trying to renormalize, which is why people target this, uh, this integrated therapy post a mystical experience because there's a few days afterwards where your brain is in this new, newly open state and you can create these new patterns. But if you're not careful, you'll fall back into your old habits very fast. And so we're able to see that with quantified data and it was, it was remarkable uh, to have informa- data that mapped my subjective experience going through that process. Mm-hmm. And this is recent that this has happened because like given your structured approach to, to, to 
health and wellness, doing that and now having these beautiful life affirming habits, then it, it can kind of like infuse and, and I guess um, it can like, you know, make them more firm and less like, you know, flexible, but I mean, flexibility is great, but I'm talking about like just making it more concrete, like more of like your true choice. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. I mean, I, I am generally with you and it, doesn't seem to me that I genuinely have free will. Uh, it, it seems to me like I am an observer <laughs> of, of what has been done and I get notified of the news after the decisions have been made. And it's like, okay. Isn't that so annoying? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm in the bleachers watching myself and it's kind of like, what's going to happen next? So in that sense, it's kind of fun. Like I'm watching a movie of self, um, and this is why I guess I, I maybe I'm more open to this idea of letting my body run me. Uh, one, just because the tangible benefits is I feel so much better than I did before. And, and the, the, the brain technology helps, helps um, close a missing gap of what we don't know about self. So we have this elusive part of us that our mind and our consciousness, and it's like we, we can't measure it. So it's like anyone can jump in with any opinion and say anything they want. And to me, this brain recording device, even though not perfect, is a step in the direction of wrapping our minds around the data of, of this otherwise unmeasurable uh, part of our existence. And so to me, this is it makes all... It makes sense on where we're going as a species. Blueprint to me just seems so obvious of a mirror and capturing the zeitgeist of where we're at. The All the feedback and the hate I'm getting is 100% predictable. Like <laughs> zero surprise whatsoever that humans would respond in this fashion. And that they, I'd say this is the most important thing. Um, I've demonstrated that an algorithm takes better care of me than I can myself. Now, it is equivalent to when the first message was sent via the telegraph, the Pony Express was dead. When, uh, you know, when steam engines were invented, it was the new mode of transportation. When we used digital navigation in our cars instead of paper maps on the laps, the maps were dead. To me, my demonstrating that an algorithm takes better care of me than I can myself makes inevitable. The mind is dead when it comes to taking care of our health and wellness. That no matter how much people kick and scream right now and how much, how much vitriol and how much it scares them, we're on this inevitable path. And so it's better to reconcile with that and move forward because some things you just cannot stop. And my argument on this is going to be this is an inevitable path of our evolutionary future. And the faster we can reconcile with this and move to the, the games that will be more enjoyable, the better off we'll be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And, and, and through my own approach you know, to Buddhism, we say that like the more integrity we have and the more aligned we are mm -hmm. with our heart's needs and, and the, you know, and 
in, in Buddhism, we have these vows, right? So not to get too sort of religious about it, but if the more you live with integrity, with like your values, the more your, your mind can actually relax. And, you know, one of my teachers says that the more to, the, to achieve a relaxed mind, you just have to look at your habits, like what you're doing regularly every day. So I, I, I applaud what you're doing. And I think, uh, it is controversial be because of the fact that there is this, you know, this kind of cloud of like, wow, he's like defying death and does he want to be mortal and does he want to be God? And, you know, I say yes to all of it. Fuck it. Let's go for all <laughs> of it. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't mind. I, I'm just a very curious person. And, and, you know, from what I, from hearing everything you said, it's just reinforces our, our fundamental need mm. To look at our habits mm -hmm. and make sure that those habits are are the ones that are you know helping to self-produce mm -hmm. a relaxed mind and an open heart. Mm -hmm. So whatever it is, if it's the blueprint or if it is a, a, a whatever path that you are being kinder and more compassionate towards the well-being of other people, then live. May yeah. all fantasies be fully fulfilled. You know. Yeah. yeah one, so thank you. Yeah. Once again, we are on the same page. The way I would I would use words to explain what you just said is my objective is I have, there are 35 trillion cells roughly that make up me. I have been trying to goal align my 35 trillion cells to all want the same thing. That is to continue to exist. And so you use the words integrity and habits and alignment so we're saying the same thing, and I'm saying, just practically speaking, I've got to run the orchestra of 35 trillion cells and get everyone cooperating and moving in the same direction. Wow, that's beautiful. Because it is like uh, sometimes, you know, every single little part of us is saying, I want candy, I want a cigarette, I want Coke, exactly. I want McDonald's, I want this, I want that. And it's like, okay, how do we orchestrate every single aspect of ourselves towards that same goal of of being relaxed and happy and kind and compassionate so yeah exactly you know amen let's go let's <laughs> so go. thank you very much for being on the show i really appreciate Thanks it that was me. really really fun yeah thank you very much all right so what did you think of this episode honey let me know on social media okay or let me know in the reviews i love you very much take good care of yourself Mwah! Okay, I'm calling on all the home bar enthusiasts right now. Are you ready to create a new kind of bar experience? One that's sober and filled with magic? Let's create a bar that goes beyond the ordinary, honey. And let's infuse it with the spirit of adventure, wellness, and connection. And listen, with that in mind, I need to share with you Anima Mundi's Apothecary and their wonderful brand new Elixir collection. When I saw that, I was like, honey, we got to share this with the community immediately. Even if you're not interested in becoming fully sober, you're sober curious, you just want to, you know, kind of try something different that's still going to make you feel good and sassy and delicious and be like, ooh, I like this. Then this is for you. One of their elixirs that I adore, it's the Euphoria. It's composed of organic, wild-crafted, and ethically grown botanicals. It's like a, a potion for joy. 
And trust me when I tell you this, honey, for those of us who are on a sober journey, or if you are in a sober curious journey, you're going to drink this, honey, and you're going to be like, ooh, girl, what's in this shit? But hey, honey, it's just a bunch of amazing, organically grown botanicals mixed together to give you that, ooh, I like this feeling. You know what I mean? And they have this Elixir Kit Barista Series. It is gorgeous, iconic, legendary, buy it for your house or also buy it for a friend. That got to be a sweet friend, honey, because that that's going to require your, a little bit of more of an investment. You could also just get each of the elixirs by themselves, right? And it's an invitation for you to become a spiritual mocktail barista in the comfort of your own home. You know, trust me, you're going to love it. Your body is definitely going to love it. Your mind will thank you and your soul will be like, okay, honey, okay, lit. Listen, and I guarantee you that people that try these elixirs are going to be like, oh, what's going on, honey, over here? I mean, you got to find a recipe that works, but this is the base of it. It's delicious, amazing, and it's going to get you lit. Are you ready to unlock the magic of this elixir collection, honey? Head over to animamundiherbals.com. I'm going to try to spell that for you. A-N-I-M-A-M-U-N-D-I herbals.com. Herbals is spelled H-E-R-B-A. LS.com. Or instead of you listening to spell this, you know, trying to pass the spelling B over here, go to the link in the show notes. And listen, don't forget to use code capital S-A-H number one and number five, SA15 at checkout for an exclusive 15% off your order. Okay. Bless, bless all this beautiful, sober, spiritual bar experiences that you're about to create. Love you.